no idea what I'm planning on talking about, but do you know what you're going to share? Well, we're going to talk about Job. We're going to talk about the so-called planet Pluto, and we're going to talk about some road trips you probably won't want to take. Hey, I want to come and hear that. That sounds good. Great. Okay. Well, unfortunately, I'm going to be unfortunately, unfortunately or fortunately, I'm going to be in Iowa for family reunion. But that's a couple of weeks off. Uh, but I want you all to be very careful to be as hard on Ron as he is on me, if you would, please. So, um, but uh, we are in uh, in Romans nine, and I am I am going very slowly through these verses. Uh, in Romans 9 and uh, because they are verses that uh, many people have a lot of questions about and there are, uh, I think, personally, I think there are many, many misunderstandings of these verses and so it, I think it behooves us to take our time and really carefully think through them and to think a lot about the, uh, uh, about the, uh, uh, the Old Testament allusions uh, and quotations that he gives us in these in these verses, uh, in order to understand really the context of Paul's thinking as he communicates the things that he communicates. So, so I, I really don't make any apology for uh, for for taking our time and going slow, and I hope that uh, it gives you all a, a a kind of a firm foundation with which to look at this chapter. Uh, the more I look at chapters 9 through 11, uh, going through at this time, and like I said, I've, I've taught through Romans several times, but it's been many years since I last did it. Uh, but uh, just going through at this time, I'm just so impressed and excited about these chapters because the, the dominant theme of these chapters, 9 through 11, is not what people often think it is, but really the dominant theme throughout these chapters is this, the absolute magnificent mercy of God and how he wishes to extend that mercy, as he says at the end of chapter 11, to all. And uh, I, I just think they're great chapters when they're properly understood and they're exciting chapters. And so I, I don't know about you guys, but I'm enjoying going through it and I'm enjoying taking time to really get a handle on these things. So... Uh, so that's kind of where we are. We uh, last week we were in chapter nine. We were in uh, we were looking at uh, uh, basically we were looking at verses nineteen through uh, twenty one, and uh, today we'll pick it up in verse twenty two. And I really only plan to do about three verses. I'm getting more realistic as we go along. I'm only planning to do about three verses, and we may not make it that far because these are some things that are very important, I think, for us to really understand exactly what Paul has in mind when he's talking about them. But, uh, well, let's just read 19 through, say, 26 to get our context again and then review what we talked about last week. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? On the contrary... Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, though willing to demonstrate His wrath and make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he also called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. As he also says in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be in that place, it shall be that in that place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Okay? So, uh, going back at those verses 19 through 21 that we looked at last week, what are, what do you remember are some of the key points that we talked about? 
question, uh, one of the jokes find all and do resist his will is really tied into he's trying to bring out the point that God's word does not fail, that his word is is faithful. So he used some examples and instead of seeing the point, they're going, Oh, well then why does he find fault? They're kind of trying to side sidelining and it's not somebody seriously seeking answers to true questions, but it's people that are antagonistic and very negative trying to bring out little nitpicking, well let's go over here. We don't yeah. want to talk about this. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, excellent. Good point. This is the, the question that's asked in verse 19 is not so much a question as it is an objection to the things that Paul has been saying. Uh, and uh, so Paul responds accordingly. What else? We reviewed hardening again. Okay. reasons for Okay. And they were? Judicial and uh, salvific. Salvific, yeah. Salvific, Salvific, yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, The question is, why does why does uh, hardening take place? Why does God, in some cases, harden people? As we saw very clearly that He does, and we saw that there are two reasons, uh, at least two reasons, that come clear in Scripture why God hardens people. And one is judicial; that is a judgment on their sin. So the hardening doesn't start first. But their own sin and their own refusal to listen to God and obey God comes first. And then God judicially hardens them further. So hardening is sometimes judicial and it is also sometimes salvific as we see in the case of Pharaoh. That Pharaoh was hardened in order that, uh, in order that God might effect salvation through uh, his glory that he demonstrated uh, as he overcame uh, Pharaoh's resistance to letting the children of Israel go. So, so it can be both. Uh, it can be both hardening. It can be either hardening or salvific, or it can be both at the same time. So, uh, uh, so we uh, the classic example, in, even in our modern culture, is oftentimes uh, when we're dealing with someone who is an alcoholic. One of the things you have to do with an alcoholic, oftentimes, is let them go. Let them go to the kind of the far extreme till they hit the hit bottom, so to speak. And they talk about the fact that alcoholics oftentimes don't even see or recognize their need until they hit bottom. And it's once they hit bottom that they recognize their need. Well, in some cases, uh, I think we can see in Scripture that God is letting people do that. He lets them hit bottom, so to speak, spiritually, so that they see their need. Uh, for example, he says in Romans chapter 11, he says he shuts all up under sin in order that he might show mercy to all. And so, uh, so in that way, we have hardening serving both purposes of both being judicial and salvific at the same time. Okay? What else did we talk about last week that comes to your mind? Okay. Okay. Actually, and uh, as I was going through my notes, as I was teaching that, I said there were five, but then I realized I actually found six. So there were six. Oh, he had seven. Okay. Okay. So there are five, six, or seven things that we need to keep in mind when we're thinking about the potter clay analogy. Okay. And the potter clay analogy is the analogy that Paul brings up here that is used other places in Scripture in which God talks about how the potter uh, shapes the clay uh, to make whatever kind of vessel he wants to make. And there are uh, several things that we need to keep in mind about the potter clay analogy. What are some of those things that we need to keep in mind? We're going to be talking more about the potter clay analogy today uh, in the verses we're looking at today. So this is important for us to go over. What were the things, five, six, or seven things that I listed uh, that that we should keep in mind as we talk about the potter clay analogy. What's the first thing, most obvious thing about the potter clay analogy? Okay, so that not every time in Scripture when we encounter something being said about a clay pot, 
is that a pot or clay analogy? It may be, uh, it may just be an analogy about a pot or something that happens to a pot, okay? Uh, but uh, the potter, when we're talking about the pot or clay analogy, we're talking about the analogy in which the writer or the prophet specifically talks about how the potter is shaping the clay and what his thoughts are and how the clay turns out and, and you know, how, how it is formed. And so the potter clay analogy, uh, not, not all analogies that talk about a clay pot or clay have to do with the potter clay analogy and all potter clay analogies. Okay? And that's important to remember uh, because some of these uh, six, five, six, seven points that we list here keep in mind about the potter clay analogy don't apply in some of these other analogies that he in which he talks about a, a clay or a pot or whatever so that's the first thing that uh, that not all analogies are a potter not all pot analogies or clay analogies are potter clay analogies okay what else Okay, that, now that's an important thing to keep in mind that that in none of the cases outside of Romans 9, now, now some people insist in Romans 9 it is talking about personal salvation, but outside of Romans 9, there's no case, there's no example, clear example of a potter clay analogy being used to refer to the issue of someone's personal salvation or personal eternal destiny. That's never the issue in the potter clay analogy. If it doesn't deal with individual personal salvation, what is the potter clay analogy typically used to refer to? Or to illustrate? I think God's purpose for okay. Uh, I'll go with you halfway on that. God's purposes, okay? Um, uh, so... And this is a, another central point about the potter clay analogy is that is that the pot that's made is always a vessel. Okay, we're always talking about vessels, and so today we're going to be talking about vessels. So in the potter clay analogy, you have the potter, the one who shapes the clay to make it into something, and what he's always making it into is a some kind of a vessel with one exception in the Book of Wisdom, which is actually not in the canon itself, but is in uh, the Apocrypha, in which uh, it, uh, he talks a little bit about how the potter sometimes makes idols out of this clay. But, uh, but other than that, it's always in reference to a, a vessel. And vessels are... What, what are vessels? Pardon? Well, in the analogy, they're, ana they're analogous to believers, but what are they in real life? Okay, they're, they're, they're a utensil that we have that's, or, 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 or an item that is used for a purpose. So, you, you know, particularly back in, in ancient times, they made pots and they'd have water pots and they'd have pots for oil and they'd have pots for storing grain. And they have pots for carrying refuse. They have all kinds of pots and vessels, okay? But the point is that in the potter clay analogy, you have a vessel, and that vessel has a purpose for which it is to be employed, as Paul says in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, in the household. He says, in a large household, there are many kinds of vessels. He says, there are gold and silver and wood and clay vessels. And he says, there are some for honorable use and there are some for dishonorable use. But the idea is, in the potter clay analogy, you always have a vessel that has a purpose for which it is to be employed. Some use to which it is to be put. What else? What are some other aspects of the potter clay analogy? Okay, okay. And this is really kind of the central issue of the potter clay analogy. Is the freedom of the potter to make the pot or the clay item whatever he wants it to be. That's the central issue of the potter clay analogy. Is that the potter has the freedom to make the item whatever he wants it to be. Okay? Now, that, does, that doesn't mean that we have no idea of how or, or why 
the potter makes the vessel the way he wants it to be. Some people conclude from that that, well, the potter can make the vessel whatever he wants and we have no idea and, you know, and it's just all up to him and he just makes it and, and we have no clue how or why he makes the vessel the way he does. It, does. it doesn't say that. All it's saying is that he is free to do whatever he wants. We don't know what determines how he wants to do what he wants to do. That we get into later, okay? It's but, more than freedom, though. It's like he has the right. Yes, he has the right. Yes, and Paul uses that exact word uh, there in, in the verses we just read in Romans 9. He says, does the potter not have the right over the clay to make of one lump uh, two different vessels for different uses? Okay, what else? Mm-hmm. It all comes from the same clay, and and the and the potter has the sovereign right to take this one lump of clay and take half of it and put it over here, and make one thing and take half of it and put it over here and make another thing. Okay. Uh, and the other and the other point that I made uh, that I want to bring out is the the potter clay analogy is an analogy and in that sense it's like a parable with with parables one of the important things in interpreting parables or analogies is to determine what is the point of the parable and not to try to make the parable parallel to reality at every point okay uh, for example, Scripture uses the analogy that Jesus is a door. Well, you can get carried away with that. You can try to figure out, okay, where's the doorknob on Jesus? What are the hinges on Jesus? Okay, That's taking an analogy and trying to make it parallel to reality at every point. Okay, But that's not, that's not a legitimate hermeneutic. That is not a legitimate way to interpret any literature, certainly scripture, and not a way to interpret analogy. Okay, analogies have a point. If we try to make the analogy parallel at every point, we're going to we're going to distort the scripture. Okay, so in the case of the analogy of the potter and the clay, the point of the analogy and the potter and the clay is the freedom of the potter, the sovereign right, as Ron said that the potter has to make the clay what he wants to make it. God just has that right. That's the point Paul's making. Okay. It's a mistake to take it further than that. And oftentimes people do. So, for example, and I appreciate this about many commentators, many commentators stress, we are not pots. We are not clay. Okay. Now, in the analogy, the analogy is used to... To, to picture the right, the sovereign right of the potter to make us what he wants to make us. But we are not inanimate, unfree beings. We are not like a pot which has absolutely no control over what he or she does. Okay? We are made in the image of God, which implies a certain element of freedom that God has built into us because we are made in His likeness. We are made in His image. Okay, And so, to read the potter-clay analogy and, 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 and to acknowledge the freedom of God, the sovereignty of God, the right of God is, is the point of the analogy. To read into it that we are just kind of these helpless, inanimate, uh, uh, mindless whatever that just get formed into whatever uh, totally independent of any consideration for what we are as human beings made in the likeness of God is to misread the analogy. Okay? Uh, that's important to keep in mind. Okay. Uh, a couple other points before we go on then into the verses that we're looking at today is um, we're going to pick it up. We're going to look at verse 22 
and 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 following where he 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 begins with this kind of what if God chooses to do such and so or what if God does such and so and and that's what we're going to be thinking about today about what if God does such and such with the vessels uh, that that Paul's talking about. One of the things I want to stress is if you read these verses in isolation to the rest of what Paul says in Romans 9, 10, and 11, you're going to end up with a distorted view of God and you're going to end up with a distorted view of salvation. Okay? You cannot just read these verses that God uh, has... Uh, has uh, uh, Demonstrates his wrath on on vessels of, of wrath and 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 uh, that are prepared for destruction and, and 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 his mercy on vessels of mercy that he has prepared beforehand for glory and you just read those verses and you read those verses in isolation from the rest of what Paul says you're going to end up or you may likely end up with a very fatalistic deterministic view of this whole issue of salvation. Okay. These verses must be taken in their context. Okay, so I, I want to stress that. Uh, I want to stress too, as we're going forward, the thing we've talked about over and over and over again. In Romans nine through eleven, Paul is answering the question: Has God's word failed in regard to the Jews? That's reverse. That's the question he started out with in nine six. And that's really the question he's answering. Has God's word failed? And of course he answers that it has not. And 9 through 11, chapters 9 through 11, is, is Paul's explanation of how we know that God's word to the Jews has not failed. Okay. So chapters 9 through 11, and I said this over, again, over and over again, I'm going to keep saying it. Chapters 9 through 11 is really a... Uh, it has to do with salvation history. It has to do with God's redemptive plan. How is God working out His purposes to accomplish His purpose of salvation? Okay? That's what He's heading, heading it. Uh, yes, Herb. One of the things you pointed out recently in this trend is this question. Jews are not concerned about their loss of eternal salvation. Their question, their objection is, why isn't Israel, why isn't Judea the top of all the nations? That was the promise to David. Where is it? Why has God lied about this? Why aren't we the king? Yeah. How come the Romans are king? Yeah, yeah. And the Romans, the Gentiles, are saying, wow, well, if this is Israel's salvation history, and they went down the drain, What's going to happen yeah. to us? Yeah. This is not about the individuals. It's about this pot having a group destiny. Yeah. Yeah. And we ought to apply that in the church as well. Yeah. Because we do not pray, My Father who art in heaven. Mm-hmm. We're glued together. We're a civilization. We're a body. Yeah. This comes up repeatedly in Scripture. Yeah. And it is more important, I would submit to you, than our individual. Good. Yeah. So that, so that is that's the issue we have to keep in mind that he's talking about salvation history. He's talking about redemptive history. He's talking about how God orchestrates and governs the affairs of peoples and nations in order to accomplish His purpose of salvation. To, in order to accomplish His purpose of showing mercy to all. Okay, So, this is what he's talking about. So, when he talks about vessels, keep in mind, he's talking about vessels. In other words, he's talking about something that has a purpose or a use. You have vessels in your house, right? You have vessels, and some of those vessels are your best china. Okay? And you keep it locked up away from the kids or the grandkids, you know, and you protect it. I can see Ginger and Mike eyeing each other back there because I know this is close to home to Ginger. Okay? You have precious 
uh, vessels and you watch over them and you bring them out only at times in which you want to display honor and respect. So, so if you're having some important guests over, what do you do? Do you bring out the plastic cereal bowls for breakfast? No. You bring out the best china because these vessels are dedicated for an honorable use and you use them for honor. Now you've got other vessels in your house and when your kids or your grandkids come running in from the backyard and they say, Mom or Grandma, you know, I need something to put some dirt in because I'm trying to find some worms. What do you go for? You go for the plastic cereal bowl, right? That's what you give them. And you're thinking in the back of your mind, if they ruin this, I can just what? Toss it away. Okay? Vessels of honor and vessels for common use or dishonorable use. Now, <laughs> well, our grandkids are scattered in other places and our kids are now grown. They don't dig in the yard anymore. But we've, I can guarantee you my wife will not serve you breakfast in our plastic bowls. Uh, <laughs> in fact, she virtually refuses to eat it in plastic bowls. But, so you have these vessels for honorable use and you have these vessels for dishonorable use. And Paul has made that clear. And God can make these vessels whatever he wants. But we need to remember that he's speaking. He's been speaking up to this point. He's been speaking about groups and nations and peoples and kings. That was the other thing about the potter clay analogy. Remember, it always has to do with either kings like Cyrus or it has to do with nations like Israel or the Gentiles or whatever, or the various Gentile nations. So it always had to do with nations or groups of nations. It was never used in the Old Testament to refer to an individual. Okay? So as we approach it here, we can ask ourselves, well, in these verses, how is Paul using it? Is he using it strictly in reference to the nations? Well, clearly that has been the context so far. Paul has, although he's not articulated yet, if you've read ahead and you've read chapters 10 and chapters 11, you know that in the back of Paul's mind, the point he's getting to, ready to make is how God has used the Jews as, a, as an ethnic group, as a race, as a nation, how God has used the Jews in salvation history to accomplish his purposes. That's what he's talking about. And he's going to talk about the fact that though God had blessed and favored Israel originally, that God was free now to turn the tables on the Jews. Because, not arbitrarily, not without reason, not, without, not because they'd not done anything. They had sinned. They'd rejected the Messiah. They had, they had turned their backs on God. And God then in response has turned the tables on them. And I'm tempted to say he's rejected them, but Paul's going to say specifically later in, in, in chapter 11, he has not rejected the Jews. Okay, so But they no longer have this, shall we call it, favored nation status. Okay, They're no longer in this status. And as Herb pointed out, they're pretty resentful about that. They don't like that. Okay, They're pretty upset about that. And Paul is saying, no, God has that right to do that with you and to use you as a vessel for a purpose that he has planned. Okay? And similarly, he can take somebody who was once a dishonorable vessel, and the analogy that we looked at in Jeremiah 18 makes this clear, he can take someone who's been made originally in a for a dishonorable purpose, and he can transform them and he can use them for an honorable purpose. Okay? God has that right. That's the point of the clay potter analogy is the potter has the right over the clay, this sovereign freedom. Okay? So, as we go on then, and we get into verses uh, uh, 22, Paul raises this what-if question. And he says, What if, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, uh, what if God, excuse me, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so 
to make known to, uh, the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy which He prepared beforehand for glory. Now, Paul introduces this what-if question, okay? Actually, in the Greek, it just starts out if, okay? But what we realize as we read through this, as you read down through this, and he goes, what if, or if God did this, and you read, okay, if He, you know, He was willing to do this, but He didn't do this because He wanted to do this, then what? Well, there is no then what. Uh, remember, uh, sometime back we talked about the apotestus and the protestus, okay? And, uh, the protestus and the apotestus, okay? In a statement, you have the protestus, which is the if statement, and then you have the apotestus, which is the then statement. If this, then this. Well, the paradox of this and why this passage is a little difficult to interpret is because you have the protestus, you have the if, but you don't have the apotestus, you don't have the then. He doesn't say, if God this, then this. He just says, if. Well, typically when that happens, what, what the writer or the speaker is, is really saying is they're really saying, what if? Or to put it in our vernacular, so what? Okay? What he's asking here is, so what? Okay? Uh, so, uh, so, I tell you, okay... Uh, after after church today, uh, I'm going to take my family out to dinner. Okay, I'm not, so don't get your hopes up, Teresa. Uh, uh, but but if I were to t- <laughs> but if I were to tell you I was going to take my family out to dinner, and you raise some objection, oh Rick, you can't do that. And I go, so what? What difference does it make to you whether I take my wife and my daughter out to dinner? Huh? What difference does it make to you? So what? Okay. That's what Paul's doing here. It's kind of his so what or his what if question. And his what if question involves three entities. It involves God and it involves vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy. Okay. Now, what I want to do as I approach the passage first is I want to think about before we before we really figure out the what if part of Paul's statement here. I want to think about the vessels of wrath. Who are they? What are they? What do we know about them? And the vessels of mercy. Who are they? What are they? What do we know about them? Okay. Let's figure that out and then go back and figure out what Paul's what if question or so what question is. Okay. So, so we have these vessels uh, first in, in verse uh, uh, 22. We have these first vessels. Okay. Uh, what if God, though willing to demonstrate His wrath and make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath? Okay, now I wanna, I'm going to ask you this, and the answer is so obvious you're going to miss it, but my question is, what is the first thing we learn about these entities that he's talking about in this verse 22? What's the first thing we learn about them? What's the, the most basic thing about this these entities. And like I say, it's so obvious you probably miss it, but I'm going to ask it this way. Okay, that's not it. Pardon? Okay, that's not it. They're vessels. There we go. They're vessels. Somebody got it. I know, it's too obvious. They are vessels. What does that mean? Remembering our Clay, pardon? They have a purpose. They are, they, 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 they are utilitarian. They have something for which they are to be employed. Okay? Now, those who are inclined to read these verses in isolation of the rest of Romans 9, 10, and 11 oftentimes read this and they think, okay, these are vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. So the purpose, the instrumentality to which these vessels are designed, the purpose for which they exist, is to demonstrate God's wrath. Because that's what he talks about in this verse, right? He's going to demonstrate his wrath on these vessels of wrath. Okay? And so, the conclusion is, when these verses are taken in isolation from the rest of Romans 9 through 11, that the 
that the practical purpose of these vessels, remember vessels in your house, each one has, you know, so the good china, you know, goes on the table, you know, when the in-laws come, you know, and, and the plastic bowls go out to play in the garden with the kids. Okay, and they all have a purpose, right? Okay, well, these, these vessels of wrath have a purpose and the verses read in isolation, you would go, well, their purpose is to show the wrath of God. But that's not Paul's argument. Remember Pharaoh? Remember Pharaoh? What was the reason that God was patient with Pharaoh? Why did God say to Pharaoh after the sixth plague, I'm going to give you enough strength, you and the Egyptians, I'm going to give you enough strength to hold on for another four plagues. Why did he do that? In order that his glory might be displayed to the nations and that people like Rahab who could get saved. That's why he did. And Paul's whole argument through Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 is that God is free, if he wishes with the Jews, he is free to either show them favor or not show them favor, make them a favored nation or not make them the favored nation. He's free to do that in order to bring in the Gentiles. In other words, they are vessels, but the vessels within the context of the whole argument of 9 through 11 is not just simply to display the glory of God. Now, that's an important thing, and I think that that is one of the things that God does with vessels of wrath, is that he does display his glory. But that is not the primary idea that's in Paul's mind in Romans 9 through 11. In Romans 9 through 11, the, the utilitarian purpose to which these vessels of wrath are put is to effect God's mercy to more people. That's the purpose. That's why Paul gets so excited by the time he gets to the end of chapter 11. He just can't take it anymore. Oh, the wisdom of God. He's got this, you know, we can't figure him out. His mind is so great because all this weird, bad stuff is going on and yet God is using it to show mercy to all. And so these vessels, they are vessels. That's the first thing we learn about them. They're vessels. They have a purpose. And in the context of 9 through 11, the purpose to which this vessel is being put is to effect the publication and of God's mercy and God's saving gospel to all the nations. That's the purpose of the vessel. So when he calls them vessels of wrath, that is a description of their condition. It is not a description of their purpose. Okay, got that? So... Taken in isolation, if you just take these verses in isolation and he calls them vessels of wrath, you think that's their purpose. But that's not their purpose. That's just a description of their situation. They are vessels of wrath and they are prepared for destruction, just like that plastic bowl you sent out with the grandkids, you know. It comes back full of worms and dirt and you go, when they finish with that, it's going in the trash. <laughs> it's destined for destruction. It's been prepared for destruction. Okay, it's been prepared for destruction because it's been used for all this nasty stuff. Okay, and so you know the grandkids have ruined this one. It's going in the trash. So when he calls them vessels of wrath, he's not talking about the purpose for which they exist. He is talking simply about their condition. They are under the wrath of God. Okay. Uh, so we know that they are vessels. Uh, what else do we know about these vessels then? We know the vessels. What else do we know? Okay. We know that they're prepared for destruction. Let's set that aside and we'll get to that in just a minute. Okay, so that's another thing we know about them. What else do we know about them? Okay, okay. Okay, he's willing to demonstrate his wrath. 
uh, has not done so yet. Okay. What else? How are they used? Pardon? Okay, they're used to make his power known. Uh, and clearly, he's paralleled this with what he said in verse 21. Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same uh, lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience vast vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Uh, all the commentators I read understand that the vessels of wrath is paralleled to the vessels of dishonorable use. Okay, So the vessels of wrath is the same as the vessels for dishonorable use that he talked about in the previous verse. And, and by extension, the vessels of mercy are the vessels of honorable use. Okay? So, they are vessels, they are, they are vessels, they are vessels that are for dishonorable use, and we know from our potter clay analogy that, they, that these vessels are used according to the discretion of the potter. Okay? The potter gets to decide how the vessels are used. Okay? Now, those are, those are all things we know. And we know some of these other things that you talked about. Uh, we know that they are prepared for destruction. Now, we need to be careful here. Because you notice he says, he calls them vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And then in the next verse, when he's talking about the vessels of mercy, he says, who were prepared, whom God prepared beforehand for glory. And it's very easy when you read the second verse to jump to the conclusion that the one doing the preparing in the first verse is God, but it does not say that, does it? It just says they were prepared. He says you've got these vessels of wrath that were prepared for destruction and it doesn't say how they were prepared, when they were prepared, or who prepared them. It just says they were prepared for destruction. Then you read the next verse and we learn about the vessels of mercy that they were prepared by God and we learn that it was done beforehand. Okay? So it's before they ever existed. Before these vessels existed, they were prepared by God for mercy. I'm getting ahead of myself because we're still talking about the vessels of wrath. Okay. And one of the things that's interesting is that that word prepared, translated prepared in your English translations in, verse, verse, in both verses 22 and 23, translated the same way, are two entirely different Greek words. They're two entirely different Greek words. They're not just different forms of the same Greek word. They're two entirely different Greek words. And the one that is used in verse 23 to speak of vessels of mercy that God prepared beforehand is a word that is only used in reference to God. So not only does Paul say God prepared beforehand. So he says God first. And then he uses the word that in the New Testament is only used in reference to God. So Paul is making a very strong emphasis in verse 23 that vessels of mercy, it's, this is a God thing. He does not make that same emphasis in 22. In fact, the emphasis in verse 23 is really on God and, and the idea of it being done before. Whereas in verse 22, the idea of being prepared, it's, in a, it's, it's not only a different word, it's in a different voice. Okay? So it's, it's, not in, it's not in the active voice like, like it is in 23, but it's in this uh, voice. We can't really tell for sure whether it's a middle or the passive voice. But, but it seems that what Paul is trying to communicate here is, is the idea that this is something they've done to themselves. 
They have prepared themselves for destruction. Uh, no, that's not correct. I'm going to show you why in just a minute. We'll get to that. So that's a good question. Okay. But these are, these are vessels who have, in the, in, in the same sense that Paul talks about early in Romans, who have stored up wrath for themselves. Paul, and we read this and we come across this in other places in Scripture where God communicates this idea that people store up wrath for themselves. And, and the idea of the word preparation in verse 22 is this idea of someone who's not ready for something and then makes themselves ready for it. So the same word is used, for example, to talk about an athlete. You know, all you, oh, you fanatics, you know, I know you're just, you know, you're, you're uh, drooling in your beards. You can't wait for a few weeks from now, you know, in the first OU game, okay? And, uh, and, and what you're hoping, what you're hoping is that those OU football players are out there in the heat. Well, I guess we don't have heat this summer. But they're out there and they are preparing themselves for that first game. Okay. That's the idea of this word here. Okay. It's, 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 it's taking somebody who's not ready and getting them ready. Okay. And, and so, so the, the idea here of these vessels of wrath prepared for destruction is it's kind of the idea, the emphasis is, is, is more on, on what they have done and their own current status, their status as being ones who are headed for destruction. So they are vessels of wrath and their end is destruction, but it's really something they've brought upon themselves. Okay? He doesn't say God did it. When he gets to the next verse, he makes a big thing out of God doing it. But here he does not do that. So here we have people who by their, by their refusal, as he says in Romans chapter 1, to acknowledge the revelation of God in creation and to listen and heed the word of God and to obey God, etc., etc., or to obey the law, as he talks about in Romans chapter 2. People have refused to do that and as in doing so, they have stored up wrath for themselves and they are continuing to store up wrath for themselves. So we have these vessels of wrath who are who God in His sovereign freedom and His right is using these vessels in the ways He wants to use these vessels to accomplish His purposes of salvation in the world. And we don't always understand that, do we? If, we? if we had lived in Egypt, you know, before the Exodus, we were Jews, we wouldn't have understood what was going on with Pharaoh getting harder and harder and harder and harder and refusing to let, you know, and making our burden harder and making us go out and get the stuff we're making the bricks and, you know, giving us more work to do and then killing our kids. And we wouldn't have understood that, would we? We would have thought, this, you know, how could this be working out for salvation? But in fact, it was working out for salvation. I was reading the last uh, couple, a couple weeks ago, I was reading some about the, the uh, Islamic conquest of the Christian world back in the uh, 7th and 8th centuries when uh, the Islam, uh, Islam began to take over and took over uh, uh, Persia and Syria and, and Palestine and Egypt and swept across South Africa and invaded and took over almost all of Spain. And, uh, and, and as I was reading that, you know, and, and all, these, all these parts of the, almost all these parts of the world were all Christian by this time. And then the Muslims came in and they took over. Okay. And as I'm reading that, I'm also reading Romans 9, studying Romans 9. And I'm thinking, okay, I don't understand this. Why did God allow Islam to take over all these parts of the world, which it, at that time were Christian, at least, uh, at least nominally Christian? Why did God allow that? Well, I, you know, I don't have the answer to that. But what I am confident, because of what I understand from Romans 9, 10, 11, that God so directs the affairs of nations that He might extend His mercy to all. So I don't know how all that works out, but I have this confidence that God allowed that to happen. He was using that. He was using them as vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, but He was using them as vessels in order to publish the glory of His mercy to all the nations. Okay? So, so 
they are vessels. They are vessels prepared for destruction. And so he calls them vessels of wrath. And then we have the vessels of mercy. We're going to come back to your question, so hang on there. Okay, then we have the vessels of mercy. What do we know about the vessels? What's the very first thing we know about the vessels of mercy? They're vessels, okay? Again, this is not about their being vessels. is not about their eternal destiny. Now, we know the vessels of mercy are going to be saved because they're prepared beforehand for glory. So we know that. Okay, we know what their destiny is, but that's not the point. The point is they are vessels. As vessels, they have a purpose. They have some utility. Okay? And in the context of Romans 9 through 11, the utility is the publication of God's mercy to the nations. Right? And so... These vessels of mercy, we know they are vessels. We know what their purpose is. We know what our purpose is as vessels in the economy of God, in the household of God. Our purpose of vessels is to make known the mystery, the glory, the wonder of His mercy to all the nations. And you get to be a vessel in that project. And I get to be a vessel in that project. I don't know what kind of a vessel you're going to be. But it's an honorable thing. So maybe as a vessel, you're a prayer. Maybe as a vessel, you're a goer. Maybe as a vessel, you're a payer. I don't know how God wants to use you in the publication of His mercy to the nations. But you are a vessel. You're created for a purpose. You have a purpose for which God wants to employ you. And it's an honorable thing. Whatever it is that God, wherever God has you published, plugged in in that project of his to extend mercy to all whatever that whatever that place is he has you plugged in that's an honorable that's an honorable work you're doing so maybe you're just at home praying on your knees maybe you're uh, financially gifted and you're able to give a lot of funds to help finance the publication of God's mercy maybe God's called you to go yourself somewhere or, or maybe in your neighborhood or when you're an evangelist and you share the gospel or, or you're a missionary and you go as a missionary or whatever, you know. But, but, but you are you're an honorable vessel being used in this task that God is carrying out of publishing His mercy to the nations. Okay? So these are the vessels of mercy. Now these vessels have been prepared by God beforehand. So now we know that God has prepared these vessels. Now, I wrestle with this whole idea uh, in verses 22 and 23. Is Paul thinking here, you know, generally speaking, as we've seen up till now, he's always been thinking about nations and peoples. And so, when he's talking about vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy in 22 and 23, is he still talking about people and nations? Or is there an element of individuality in these couple verses? There may be. I wrestle with that and I don't know exactly the answer to that. But I don't have any problem because either way I see it, it still works. Okay? Either way I view it, it, it still works in the theme of Paul's argument in 9 through 11. So we have these then, these vessels of mercy and God from beforehand implied clear back at the very beginning, God had this in His mind that He was to these vessels of mercy. Remember, this is a description of their condition, not a description of their task. Just like with the vessels of wrath. Vessels of wrath is a description of their condition. It's not a description of how they're being used in the economy of God. So with the vessels of mercy, it's a description of our condition. It's not a description of our task. Excuse me. It's, yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a, yeah. it's a description of our condition. It's not a description of our task. Okay? Our task to which we as vessels are being used is the publication of God's mercy. Okay. Now, here's the thing. Every one of us who are vessels of mercy prepared beforehand by God to receive His glory were one-time vessels of wrath. 
How do I know that? Flip over real quick to Ephesians chapter 2. Incidentally, some commentators see right here in Romans 9 and the structure of these verses in Romans 9, this point being made. I'm, I'm not knowledgeable enough on the structure of the Greek to be able to argue it from there. But it's very clear in Romans in Ephesians chapter 2 um, where he says, um, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you also formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, among those ones who the spirit of disobedience is working, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. Whoa! I've suddenly, I've suddenly learned something big, new, important about these vessels of wrath. That that's not an immutable condition. It's not a condition that cannot be changed. You see, there are those who would teach from this passage that God determines way beforehand who are going to be the vessels of wrath and who are going to be the vessels of mercy. Mercy, And if you're a vessel of wrath, you're just out of luck. Because it was set from eternity past before you were ever created. God just decided He was going to form you and you are going to be a vessel of wrath and He was going to use you to demonstrate His wrath. The single best example I can think of is Jesus. Well, yeah, 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 that's, that's a little bit of a stretch, I think, on that. Okay, so, uh, so what we discover then is we were all vessels of wrath, even of those, those of us who were prepared beforehand to be vessels of mercy and to receive His glory. Now, somebody might argue and say, now, wait a minute, Rick. You know, if you're determined beforehand, then how could it be that at one point you're a vessel of wrath? Well, if you'll pardon me here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to refer to one of the most classic, famous Calvinists of all time on this one. And not being a Calvinist, you know, you'll understand this is a real stretch for me. But let's take Jonathan Edwards. And let's take Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon entitled, Sinners in the hands of an angry God. We all read about it, learned about it in school, and we all learned, you know, if we went to public school, we all learned what a jerk Jonathan Edwards was for preaching that sermon, right? Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Okay, well, I've listened to that sermon a number of times. Okay. And because I'm not a Calvinist, there are a lot of points at which I would take exception to the things that Jonathan Edwards says in that sermon. But Jonathan Edwards is preaching, actually apparently preached this sermon several times, but he's preaching this sermon to a group of people and, and his reason for preaching his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, is what? What does he want to do? Okay, pardon? He wants to convert sinners, okay? So, even though he's a Calvinist, he assumes that there are people in his audience who were sovereignly elected by God to be saved, okay? But he describes them in their present condition before they're saved, even though they're, in his mind, elected by God irresistibly to be saved, in his mind, he describes them as sinners in the hands of an angry God. And he goes on and on and on and on and on, you know. And his description of sinners is pretty graphic and pretty accurate. Okay. And, you know, he talks about them in a number of different ways, but he talks about them hanging on this thin thread over the fires of hell. And God is holding that thin thread and they're just dangling over hell. And it's just God's mercy that does not sever that thread and drop them into the fires of hell. Okay. Now, he's saying this to people hoping that some of those people are going to get saved. Right? Now, whether you're a Calvinist or not, that description of the sinner before he's saved or the sinner who never gets saved is an accurate description. Is it not? That we all were children of wrath. We were all sinners in the hands of an angry God. 
We were all dangling over the pit of hell. Now with some of us, God by His foreknowledge knew our response to the Gospel. And He prepared us beforehand for glory. Now as we set out on these two verses, we set out to discover, to understand Paul's what if question, his so what question. So what if God was willing to endure with great patience these vessels of wrath in order that He might have mercy on the vessels of mercy. And I told you we'd talk about the vessels of wrath and the vessels of mercy and then we'd come back to the what if. But as I expected, we didn't get that far. We've talked about the vessels of wrath and we've talked about the vessels of mercy, but we haven't talked about the what if. So next week, we'll talk about the what if, Paul's question, what if, and then we'll go on and we'll look at those verses that Paul quotes from Hosea about God calling a people who are not His people, His people. Okay? So that's what we'll do next week.